Welcome to Women Wanting Women, where we explore topics that matter to women like us. We talk about being a woman, attracting women, and becoming more powerful women by developing more self-confidence and always reaching for the next level in our self-actualization. I'm your hostess, lesbian love coach Jordana Michelle. And if you're interested in finding the woman of your dreams so you can be best friends who learn and grow together, share dreams together, have adventures together, and share passionate intimacy together, then also check out my website, womenwantingwomen.com, because it's packed with free resources that could help you. For example, there are free quizzes you can take, including one that will tell you what might be standing in your way of finding love and another that will tell you what qualities the woman of your dreams will find most attractive about you when you meet her. There are free video tutorials you can watch that explain why women do the things they do and how you can navigate the frustrating world of lesbian dating with confidence, even if you're feeling lonely and desperate. There are free guides you can download to learn the secrets of how to avoid rejection, heal from heartbreak, and find epic lesbian love. And there's a free matchmaking survey you could fill out in case I already know the woman of your dreams. All of that is available now on womenwantingwomen.com. And if you want lesbian dating advice from me more often, follow me on Instagram at jordana.michelle. But before we go any further, I have a question. How do you find your first girlfriend? when you're inexperienced and have no game? And what can all of us do as women to communicate with more power and self-assurance? Well, I talk about all of that and so much more with lesbian journalist Brooke Sapelsa, the editorial director of NBC Out. You can follow Brooke on Instagram at yesitsmebrooke, and you can see her work at nbcout.com. But before you do, Stay tuned for all the great stories, insights, and advice she shares with us here. Brooke, thank you so, so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so, so much for having me. Really looking forward to this conversation. So let's just jump right in. Can you talk about who you are and some background about yourself before we dive into the questions? Sure. My name is Brooke Sapelsa. I am a journalist. I'm currently the editorial director for NBC Out, which is the LGBTQ vertical of NBC News Digital. So just like NBC News Digital has a health section, a business section, it also has an LGBTQ news section. And that's the section that I oversee. And I started that about seven years ago. That's so awesome. I can't wait to ask you more questions about it. But first, let's just get just about who you are as a person. You yourself are also part of the community. How old were you when uh, you realized that you were attracted to women? So, you know, probably when I first realized, oh, I think there's something different about me. I would say it was in high school, maybe my sophomore year of high school. And looking back on it, though, there were signs long before that. I distinctly remember when I was in first grade having a crush on the second grade teacher um, who taught across the hall. And I had all of these what I called obsessions with 
old movie stars. I was in the Barbara Eden fan club when I was like 10 years old. Uh, for those who don't know, she played Jeannie on the 1960s TV series, I Dream of Jeannie. I was also in the Mary Tyler Moore fan club, another one of my quote unquote obsessions. I had a life-size cutout of Barbara Eden, the I Dream of Jeannie actress. So, I mean, the signs were there, but when I was, I mean, I'm, I'll be 42 next month. When I was younger, it's not like we were learning about LGBTQ issues in school or, you know, were exposed to gay characters on television. So I didn't have the language for this. I, you know, as I said, when I was younger, I just thought of these as my little obsessions with older actresses. And much older, mind you. <laughs> much, much older, much older. And uh, I distinctly remember being a sophomore in high school. And I, I mean, I think I probably had crush on like three of my high school female teachers. And I was like, yeah, this is a little more than like a movie star obsession. But yeah, so that was, that's how it went. But there was a lot of denial, actually, for probably, that's when I first got an inkling. But then there was probably denial for another, you know, five years. Do you remember what the nature of the obsessions were? Like, what was it that you thought about these women? Like, what did you, did you want to be their friend? Like, how did it, how did you experience it when you were that age? Oh, that's a good question. Ha. Huh. I mean, I, I think I just saw it as being a super fan. Like, oh, I would love to meet Barbara Eden, even though at the time I, she was probably in her 70s. I mean, maybe 60s. But, you know, because I dream of Jeannie, that show was on decades before I was born. So, I mean, I just, you know, kind of looked at it as being an obsessive fan. But then it was like, okay, that, that was a TV crush on a little, you know, baby lesbian. But I, I also was very sheltered at that age. So I don't even, I, you know, probably at the time was just like, oh, I really want to really want to meet her. But I probably watched every episode of I Dream of Jeannie and the Mary Tyler Moore show like six times. And this is like before DVR. So, you know, I'd be like tape recording it on my parents VHS and rewatching it. It was like old school binging. And then in high school with these teachers, did you did you make friends with them? Did you give them extra attention? Did you talk to them more? Did they pay attention to you? How did it go? Oh, yeah. I think yes on all accounts. I, you know, I mean, I just was like, oh, I love this class. I, I remember, you know, when a teacher was absent and there was a substitute teacher and, you know, the substitute would show a video or, you know, everyone was like, yeah, we don't have to go to, you know, we don't have class. We just get to watch this movie. I'd be like, oh, darn it. You know? And I, I kind of think initially, I was just like, oh, I just really like this teacher. But I don't know. I don't think I had crushes on anyone my own age when I was, when I was a teen. I was going to say, you, these are all much older women. Yeah. And, you, I, and you know, your partner is not, Dan's not a lot older than you. No, just like, well, you know, she probably, well, she doesn't like me to remind her, but she'll always be two and a half years older than me. But not 20. <laughs> not 20 no, years old. No, 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 no. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I guess, it, I, you know, if I were like a betting woman, then I'd be like, oh, I'll probably end up like with someone like many years older. But no, it's not how it. Actually, I think the old the oldest person I ever dated would 
was like seven years older than me. Yeah. It's funny how that works. It seemed as though you kind of had a, a grandma thing going on when you were younger. But... Oh my goodness. Well, they were young teachers. They were young teachers. But yeah, teachers nonetheless. At least 10. They were probably 10 years older than me. And so from there, you're in high school. There's something different about you. What then happened? How did it come to be that you took action on these things? Well, you know, I, I didn't. So when I was in high school, I was, my group of friends was like the nerdy girls. I mean, I think of us as like cool and nerdy. And out of my, out of my high school friend group, I'm the only one who's a lesbian, but none of us dated in high school. Now, mind you, like these amazing friends of mine, you know, they all went to Ivy League schools, became doctors and lawyers. And we were all just really focused on, on our schoolwork. You know, the most exciting thing, we would go to the movies and to an Italian restaurant on like a Friday or Saturday night. That was like a big night out for us in high school. So I was very sheltered. My parents were very strict. So yeah, no, no, um, no dating. And also my dad's a really big, scary guy. And, you know, he said any guy that wanted to take me out would have to come to, to come to the house and meet him. And I was like, no effing way. <laughs> I was like, you know, I think even if I were straight, I wouldn't like date anyone because my dad was so scary and intimidating. Even now in his seventies, he's scary and intimidating. So um, yeah, there was no dating, but my, my whole friend group didn't date, which is, you know, now looking back on it, that's kind of odd, but we didn't think about it as odd then. And I never, I think I probably would have been, maybe I would have been a little more like experimental and tried to go on a date with, you know, went on dates with boys, but none of my friends were doing it. Yeah, that's great. They sound just like a really smart, awesome group of people to grow up with. And we still keep in touch. That's so sweet. Well, then how did it happen that you came out? I'm going to, I'm going to level with you, Jordana. I was a very boring teen and young woman in my twenties. I did not, let's see, how can I, I'll say it was a very late bloomer. I didn't date anyone until I was 24 years old. So even through college and I, I went to, I went to Bucknell. I didn't know any out gay people at Bucknell. I, th I think maybe when I was a sophomore, I met one or two gay guys. And then when I was a senior, I, I studied abroad in Rome my whole junior year. And Rome was, I actually came out selectively when I studied abroad in Rome and then went back in the closet when I went back to Bucknell. But what does that mean? So you just told people that you were attracted to women? Yeah, I, I, I told some people. And then I went back to Bucknell and I was like, oh, I just didn't say anything. You know, and I'm sure a lot of lesbians have gotten this like in their, the time before they came out where it's like, oh, she's just really picky. You know, she's, oh, she's really picky about the guys that she likes, but actually kind of a, a funny story. And I'll try to tell it very quickly. When I was a, I think, yeah, when I was a freshman and by this point, I, I knew I was a lesbian and I, I was like, I'm going to take this secret to the grave. I mean, that was like my mindset at the time. And I, I started university at 17. So there was this beautiful man on our campus and he was actually, he was a model and everyone was like, oh, why don't, you know, 
you don't like any guys, you're not going on dates. And I was like, well, you know what? I, there is a guy I like. And I was like, I, I, I like this guy. His name was Andrew. And I was like, I like Andrew. Andrew, the male model. Yeah. I was like, I only have eyes for Andrew. And I was like, okay, I'll ju I'm just going to pick someone really unattainable and uh, pretend that, listen, I, I'm not dating anyone because he's the only one I want. And was it conscious? Uh, you know, I... You purposely picked a guy that you thought your friends would assume was out of your league? Not that he even, I mean, why would he be out of your I, league, but... Well, you know, I don't know. I, th I, I think I knew at some level that I that I was doing this. There was part of me that was fooling myself, right? But there was part of me that knew what I was doing. And we actually had this, oh, I fast forward. Now this, we're getting, this is more than 20 years ago, but Andrew asked me on a date. Uh-oh. <laughs> I guess he heard, I don't, I, I don't know what, if he heard or what. And I was like, oh shit, there we go. Jigs up. And I just kept making excuses. And I'm sure he thought I was like a total weirdo. And eventually like he forgot about me. And then I, I don't even know what I did after that. I, I don't even know like what stories I was telling. But when I was a senior, I had these two close, I was living with my two roommates off campus and they are amazing. One of them I've lost touch with, but one of them I'm still friends with. And they, they knew I was a lesbian and I was just closeted. And we had something in college that we called the lesbian fridge. And anytime we would find like sapphic images in a magazine or anything, we'd cut it out and we'd put it on the fridge. So we called it our lesbian fridge. I don't even know how it started, but you know, looking back, they were trying to create this like safe space nest for me to come out. And one night we're all sitting around the table. It was probably spring semester, our senior year. I, I think it was like nearing graduation. And we had a few drinks and we're, I don't know how it was decided. We're all going to tell deep secrets. And both of my roommates share really personal things that they never shared with at least no one at Bucknell. And, you know, I was really touched that they shared that with me. And then both of them at the same time turned to me and say, Brooke, is there anything that you'd like to share? <laughs> and then I initially was like, nope, actually, you know, no secrets here. So then Brooke, you sure there's nothing you want to get off your chest? You don't have anything you'd like to... And I don't know, maybe it was like, maybe I had two drinks more. And then eventually I was like, well, I think I might be like bisexual. And they're like, really? Okay. And I was like, yeah, maybe like, I don't know, 60, 40, 80%, 20%. And they're like, oh, which way? And I'm like, I'm oh, probably 80% gay. And they're like, oh. And I mean, I don't even think they said like we knew, but you know, I think they were just trying to create this little cocoon for me. But yeah, I initially came out, I think, in college as bisexual. But wait, let's pause on why, because, okay, my friends, to the extent that anyone suspected anything, it had to do with me crushing on a friend of ours that I was a little bit in love with at the time. And I didn't know, but they were all laughing at me about it. So it was obvious to other people that I was in love with this person and that I was a lesbian. I wish they had told me because I could have come out a lot earlier and done something <laughs> about it. But no one told me. I didn't know the joke. I knew there was a joke. I just didn't know what it was. I knew it had to do with me getting rejected by like a friend who didn't want to be as close with me as I wanted to be with her. But 
in the absence of you crushing on anybody and that just, it was just basically you not crushing on boys. That was enough for them to think you were like, what was it? Cause it. Okay. So you know what? I did leave out an important part of the story throughout my college years. There were two friends that I was like very close with and kind of, you know, obsessed with. So yeah, there, there was that component, which probably is important context, but I also had never dated a guy at Bucknell and they knew it. I mean, they, we were roommates and we had been friends since freshman or early sophomore year. So yeah, that, that was the additional context. And who were these friends of yours and what was their, how did they relate to you? Well, I don't know if I want to get into that. I, I actually don't talk to, I haven't talked to either of them in a long time. But I think people can sense, I think we probably were closer. Though, I mean, to my knowledge, both of them are straight women. But who knows? I haven't seen or talked to them in a long time. And I did keep in touch with both of them for a long time after college. But now college is more, you know, I graduated. I actually graduated 20 years ago this year, May 2003. So yeah, I, you know, I guess it's just like the way I talked about the friendship, focused a lot of attention on them. I think that was part of it, but it was also part, you know, it was also in the context of Brooke has never dated a guy on campus. Right. You've never dated a guy and you have all this interest in these two female friends of yours. Exactly. Yeah. hundred percent. I mean, goodness, looking back on it, I'm like, wow, what a way, you know, it just... I, I sometimes I wish I could talk to little Brooke and just shake her because it's it's a lot of effort to conceal your sexuality. Yeah, and the time lost of you know when I think about how much happier my college years would have been, how much more fun I would have had. Did you come? Were you out in college? I didn't realize I was a lesbian at all. I had no idea until really? I was twenty three. Yeah, I wish I had known. I did fall in love with my friend. I just didn't know, and I and then I actually. When I, because she ended up transferring, nothing to do with me. She just wanted to go home. And uh, during the time when she transferred, I just, I was like sick with, with how much I missed her. But I also knew that she didn't miss me. (laughs) And she was all I could think about. Where'd you go to college? I'm just curious. I went to the University of Michigan. Yeah. Okay. And uh, so I, I went, ended up seeing a therapist because I knew my friends were laughing at me. So there was the fact that they all knew I was in love with her. They were laughing at me and I was completely sick because I missed her so much. And I also knew that she wasn't missing me. She wasn't thinking about me. She wasn't talking about me to her friends at home the way that I couldn't stop thinking about her. And so I thought there was something wrong with me, especially the way my friends were laughing at me. I thought I was a stalker. I thought that I literally thought that I had a problem because I had had a guy stalk me my freshman year. And um, not in a dangerous way, but just like he literally flunged out of school because all he did was follow me around. Oh, wow. It was weird. (laughs) But so I was, saw myself through my friend's eyes laughing at me and I wondered, do I have this problem? And so I ended up seeking out the the counseling of someone at the health services center at at our university and, you know, said, explain the problem. I said, there's this person and I think about her all the time. I think about her when I wake up. I think about her throughout the day. I, all I want is to hear from her. And, uh, and I think about her when I'm going to sleep and, you know, and like I'm a stalker and please help. And the therapist, you know, had said, um, well, it sounds like you might be in love with this person. And so that was when I realized, oh my God, you're right. And also I realized that this horrible crushing feeling in my chest, like I would just feel, I was feeling just, I remember that whole summer I had this horrible, deep, horrible 
sensation, like this heavy sensation in my chest. And I realized, oh my God, that's literally a broken heart. That's what that is. Oh. <laughs> I like, and I was like, oh my God. And the songs on the radio say that those heal. So that's good news. So it was just this huge revelation. But so she was like, okay, you're in love with this girl. And then she said to me, so you're a lesbian. And I was like, what? Like, what do you know? I just, obviously I need to find a guy who makes me feel this way, the way that she does. Because it just, I, I had never, I didn't even know any lesbians. It didn't make sense. I didn't, how could I be a lesbian? I never even kissed a girl. Like, are you even allowed to be a lesbian if you don't kiss a girl? <laughs> and I didn't know any lesbians that were anything like me. So it just didn't make sense uh, at the time. So I just rejected the notion until I was, uh, then it, and then I fell in love with another girl when I was in law school. And that was when I realized like, okay, it's time to, instead of saying, I need to find a guy who makes me feel this way, I was ready to say, okay, it's clearly not guys who make me feel this way. And so then I came out. I'm just thinking, he hearing you talk about your friend, I, I remember distinctly, this was my senior year and one of the friends, because one of the friends that I, I had a crush on was a couple of years older than me. So my senior year, she was gone. But then there was this other friend. And I remember we were so close. And then she got a boyfriend. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, my goodness. I thought my world was falling apart. And I distinctly remember saying to her, I wish there was no such thing as romantic love. And everyone can just be friends. And she was like, that's so sad. And looking back on it, I'm like, God, what a sad thing for me to have been thinking at that time. But I think a lot of us probably go through this. I, and I'm hoping less so now, because even if even people who live in less accepting areas, they still have the internet, they still have television. I mean, there are queer characters on almost every TV show now. Absolutely. We didn't have that. Nothing like that. How old are you? How old are you? I'm just curious. Are we around the same age? We're, I'm a year. I'm 43. We're. I'm a year older than you. Yeah. Oh, we're about the same age. Yeah. yeah. There was nothing. No, almost nothing at all. So, how then did you end up? How did you start dating women? What What did you do, and how did that work? Like, how did you enter the community? What did you start doing? You said you were 24 years old. Were you dating women before that, and just not telling people, or no? I mean, how did it start? No, that you... I, I I was dating no one. Um, which, you know, is, I mean, I could kind of laugh about it now, but it was pretty sad then. You know, I was, I had a lot of shame. I also grew up very sheltered and I think I was probably immature for my age. So I didn't date anyone until I was 24. But when I started dating someone is not necessarily when I entered the community, so to speak. Because when I was, I was probably 21 or maybe I had just turned 22 when I discovered Meow Mix, the long since shuttered lesbian bar. On like Suffolk and- uh, On the Lower East Side. Yeah. Yeah, it was on East Houston and like Suffolk, Suffolk or something. Yeah. So I would, and I, I was living in New Jersey at my parents' house at the time. So, you know, I was a real catch then, as you can imagine. I was taking the bus from New Jersey, not just one bus, actually, a bus from New Jersey to Manhattan, then at least two subways to get to the Lower East Side, because you know how much of a pain in the butt it is to get to the Lower East Side from anywhere. And I would go by myself to Meow Mix on Thursday nights, which was Gloss Night, which was their lipstick lesbian night. And I started doing that probably at 21, maybe 22. 
And that's actually how, how I met my very first lesbian friend who I'm still good friends with to this day. Uh, she was a bartender at Meow Mix. And I used to come in in my turtlenecks and blazers um, after work on a Thursday. And, you know, I think she took pity on me and like would just talk to me. And we've been friends ever since. So she was my first lesbian friend. But I was so inexperienced. I had never dated anyone. I, I, I had no game as, you know, 21, 22 year old Brooke. So even though I would go there, I would talk to people, but I've never, I didn't date anyone. And I would, a lot of my straight friends got dragged there to Meow Mix. And a special shout out to my friend Luciana, a straight lady who's probably been to more lesbian bars than most lesbians. Because yeah, I didn't have any lesbian friends at the time, but I did meet my first lesbian friend at Meow Mix, but it would be another like two years before I dated anyone and someone I met at work. Meow Mix was also the first lesbian bar I ever went to. Ah, I knew about it nice. because of the movie Chasing Amy. I wonder if that's how I knew about it. Well, what was that movie? 1998, 99? Yeah, in, in 1997, 1998, 1999, in that area. Yeah. And I then once was in the city and I saw it. I was like, oh, that's the bar. And so I made my, I first, I was with my guy friend that night and I made him come in with me. And then I took myself there alone a bunch of times. This is before I even knew I was a lesbian. I knew I was very curious about this. But yeah, so go Meow Mix, shout out. It was 1997. I just looked it up. Boom. Yeah. I have a funny story about Chasing Amy. I, I saw it with my high school boyfriend. And um, I remember watching it and just being like, Oh my god! 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 And I was freaking out. I remember just freaking out during the movie because I don't know something about it just really deeply resonated. I'm 17. If it was 1997, and I was I was finishing my junior year, I had this boyfriend, and he went to kiss me when we were in the parking lot, and I was like, "Don't kiss me! I'm a lesbian." And he's like, "What are you talking about? No, you're not." And I was like, "Thank God." Because you, I trusted him because it was just like something was freaking me out. Like, oh, this that was you know something totally just resonated, and I was really worried about it. So I was glad when he told me that I was not. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. He would know. He would know. He would know. I was (laughs) sleeping with him after all. But yeah. (laughs) So right on, meow mix, and your first friend, and then so how did you find your first partner? When how did that happen? How did you find more lesbian friends? So I, I met a lot of lesbian friends through my first lesbian friend. I used to call her the lesbian mayor of New York City. So she had she introduced me to you know her crew. And then I, I mean I, I'm like, what was I doing for those two years where I was like kind of out, kind of going out? But I I was just so it's hard to explain how really clueless and immature and sheltered I was. I actually met a couple at Meow Mix, a man, a man and a woman. I was so sheltered. I did not even realize that they were trying to pick me up. And then I just became friends with them. <laughs> and I'm like, I, years later, I was like, oh, oh my God, they were trying to, they were trying to pick me up. That's, oh my God, that's how, that's how I met them. But I mean, the first time I ever got drunk was at a family barbecue when I was like 17 after I graduated from college. You know, I I didn't have a normal young adulthood. I had a very sheltered young adulthood. So 
I say that just because I, I think my experience was probably quite different than most people. I mean, at least most people like around my age. But yeah, I, I was, um, my very first girlfriend was a friend of mine from work who I thought was straight. And things just like slowly, slowly went from friendship to romantic territory. I mean, I mean, that must have been amazing after being, you were saying that it was later in life for you. You hadn't had any partner up to that point, much less yeah. a female. And, and I remember thinking like, oh, this is how my life's going to be. I'm going to marry the first person I date. You know, you just like think it's everything's forever. So yeah, I remember at 24 being like, well, this is it. My search is done. But yeah, I think, I don't remember how long we dated, maybe a year, maybe two. But then, you know as first relationships relationships go was just really not the right fit but you know i have some lovely memories absolutely you still friends you know what she's probably the only girlfriend i've ever had that i'm not still friends with oh interestingly yeah and it's interesting because you started as friends I, i i know i know i it's curious how that worked out but I, I, I think there was, you know, I, I started dating someone else quite soon after. And I think there was probably a lot of resentment. And I also was probably a bit immature to, you know, every other breakup has been very mature, I guess. And there's like that cooling off period. And then, you know, after a while you could become friends. But yeah, it didn't work out that way. But I, I think I could, I think I could safely say I'm, I'm friends. I mean, not best friends, but I, you know, I, I have friendships with everyone else I've dated. That's really nice. So do you have any thoughts about making friends in the lesbian community? Do you have any thoughts about dating in the lesbian community? What are some insights you have from your experience? It's interesting. I have a few different friend groups and I love to mix my friend groups. But for the most part, you know, I have certain friends that I do some things with, certain friends that I do other things with. And I feel so privileged to have made an amazing group of lesbian friends. And interestingly, most of my lesbian friends work in my same field. They're lesbian journalists. Yeah. Lesbian journalists. And they've really been my, I mean, they've they've really been my rock because my, I I think this is many professions may be like this, but I think for journalists, especially when I, I, I work in LGBTQ journalism and it's very personal to me and my personal life and my professional life are very intertwined. And my lesbian crew of friends They've just been my rocks, my professional muses. They give me so much support and strength. I don't know what I would do without them. And I didn't make any lesbian friends until I was was well into adulthood. And I feel very thankful to have that crew. And I'm trying to think where I met all of them. You know, my very first lesbian friend who I'm still friends with, I met at a lesbian bar. The bartender? The bartender, yeah. The mayor. 
the lesbian mayor slash former bartender. She's not a journalist though, but she works in media and marketing and art, art direction. But one of my other lesbian BFFs I met at work, we used to lead NBC's LGBTQ employee resource group. One of my other lesbian besties, we met through our former co-workers who were partnered with each other, a lesbian couple. So yeah, I, you know, I, I think it's, I, I get so much out of all of my friendships, but with my lesbian group, there's just this, you know, we have the, we have a similarity that I don't have with my other friends and it's, I just kind of a different level of friendship, not necessarily better or, you know, but it's just different. I can talk to them about things that my straight lady friends, my gay guy friends just don't understand. And I feel, I feel thankful for that. And also thankful that I have friends that are sort of my professional muses. And I I don't know if it's like that in other fields, but in my field, which is journalism, which I feel like is a creative field in many ways, you know, but I feel like it's important to have those people that inspire you. Anytime I meet up with them, I'm like, oh my God, I feel, I feel a renewed sense of energy. And I wish I could articulate it better as to why. But, you know, for people that are looking to form their sapphic friend circles, you know, I, I'm thinking where I would go to, to meet friends. I mean, listen, lesbian bars, right? And there have been, and we've reported on this at NBC News, there have been several new lesbian bars that have opened up since the pandemic. I think a dozen across the U.S., several in New York, The Bush in Bushwick, Brooklyn, um, Mary's Bar, which is in Greenpoint, I believe. So those are amazing spaces to meet other women. And it doesn't have to be just for romantic connections. You know, I... I have a partner and I remember I went to Mary's bar not too long ago with my lesbian crew and we met some lovely women who were like, yeah, we got to hang out. I think I'm Instagram friends with them and we're, you know, we'll plan something, but there are also, you know, things outside of bars. Like I, um, the ripped bodice, the new romance bookstore in Brooklyn. And now these are very New York based things, but I think these are also things that can translate into other cities. But the Ripped Bodice, which is a romance bookstore just opened in Brooklyn. There's one in Los Angeles. I believe it's queer owned. And they just started a queer book club. And they have an in-person meetup once a month, um, you know, for queer romance books. And I'm like, that'd be a very cool place to meet other queer women, whether for romance or companionship. And if you're not in New York, then that's such a great idea to start a queer, to go to a local bookstore and bring up the idea of you starting yeah. a queer book club with queer romance books. And there are LGBTQ interest groups all over the place. I mean, I live in New York, so and, and I've always lived in New York or outside of New York. But you can join a queer cycling group or a queer knitting group. Or start one if it doesn't exist. Exactly. So I think that's a great way to meet like-minded people. It may, depending on where you are, if you're in, if you're not in a huge city, it may take some research to find, or you can create your own. 
but I also think it's easier to find that stuff now. I mean, when I was in my early twenties, A, I don't think there was as much. B, I don't think it was as easy to find. Yeah. And if you start one, put it on meetup.com or other right. community organizing groups because people go looking those places and there'll be other people in your city who want to find something like that. And if you start something like that for it, it won't just help you. It'll help everyone around you. So if you're not in New York City, I think that's all such great advice. Do you have any thoughts on advice about dating? Like you ended up, you know, finding an amazing partner. Do you have any thoughts on for anyone who's single and frustrated? I do. A few thoughts. One is, if you're single and happy, there's nothing wrong with that. I know there are people who feel pressured to be coupled up, but some people are perfectly happy not being coupled up. I found with myself personally, and I think with a number of friends of mine, when you are happy and you feel whole, that is the time that you are ready to meet someone. There have been times in my life where I've not been happy. I've not felt whole myself. And I've tried to meet other people. I've tried to meet someone, you know, date to date people. And those are not the best times to form lasting, healthy relationships. I, I think if you are looking for something long and lasting, make sure you yourself are in a good place. Make sure you are someone who would be a good partner. And I think you have to be a good partner in order to find a good partner. So when I met Diane, I chased her for six months. I don't know if I ever shared this story with you or if Diane ever did, but you know, I, I, I like to, I, I like to remind her that I shamelessly courted her for six months. But when she and I first met, I was in a good place, but not a great place. And, you know, we kind of casually dated, but I think when we started dating seriously and Diane was open to a serious relationship, I think it was when, well, A, when she was ready, but also I think it's when I was finally in a great place. I felt like I was whole and I had, I was able to be a good partner. And I feel like that was when she sensed that I would be someone that she could seriously date. Yeah. You felt like a, a better match at that point. I want to dive a little deeper into that to go from not being in a great place to being happier, more whole. How, how did you do that? And for, for someone who's not in a good place and that feels unattainable, what are some thoughts you have on that? Outside of the obvious of just seeking therapy, were there other things that you did, practical advice? That's a good question. When I first met Diane, I'd actually just been laid off from the Huffington Post. And it was a weird time in my life because I had never not had a full-time job since I was like 22 years old. I met Diane when I was 34. And it was the first time in my life where I, w I didn't have like a, a nine to five. And it was an interesting period of my life because I had a lot of time to reflect. And one thing I realized was my sense of self-worth was so tied into my job that it was unhealthy. Because when I didn't have a job, I felt like I had no self-worth. And I, I really had to work on that because at any given moment, we, we can't depend on anything external to define us and to give us our sense of self-worth. And I realized that I had been doing that. 
And I had a real period of reflection where I had to think about who is Brooke without being a journalist at XYZ. And it took some time to figure out, but that was part of it, separating who I am from what I do. And so what were the, some of the things you called upon? Like, what were the, some of the things you were able to, if it's not what you do, what was it? Is it that you're a good daughter, that you're a good friend? Is it, is it none of those things? Like, where did you source it from, if no longer that? I'm an empathetic person. I'm a good friend. I love my family. I love spending time with my dog. I'm a lifelong learner. I realized I had a lot to offer without what I did from nine to five or, you know, eight to seven, whatever, whatever work days, you know, however long our workday stretches. And, and now I, I actually, you know, I take a lot of pride in my work, but I really try to separate myself from my work a lot more. And I've, I've done that over the past seven years. Did you make lists? Like, let's just say anyone's sitting here listening to this and either doesn't have a job or self-worth a little too tied up in their career. Do you recommend like making a list of all the the things about you that, that make you a good human outside of your work? Like, is that something you did? I mean, I think that's a great idea. I, I am a fan of lists. I did not do it in this, for this particular instance, but I remember when I was at one of my lower points, and this was not long before, this is probably a year before I met Diane. I remember making a list of things that I enjoyed doing, things that made me happy. And I think I've lost that list, but for a long time, I kept it with me. And looking at it was always a sense of joy because sometimes you forget like things that just bicycling on the West Side Highway bike path in Manhattan, oyster happy hours. Hot showers and puppies. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So I think lists are great. And I actually, I wish in this instance, I would have thought to make a list. I've, I, I, when I've been depressed, I've made the list of things that make me happy. It is a really good activity and helps with your own gratitude, right? So it's like you're having a down moment and to affirmatively make that list, it's very life affirming. Yeah. So one of the main ways that you think you went from being in a not great place to being in a better place is to really defining your self-worth outside of, of your career. And do you think that was the main thing that kind of changed for you that made you ready for the relationship you have with Diane? I think so. I also think, I don't think she was ready for anything serious. And we decided to spend time as friends and just get to know each other. And then things sort of, you know, the more we got to know each other, the more we realized we enjoyed each other's company. And then we gradually moved back into romantic territory. Because I think when you meet some, you know, when you meet someone at, we met at an LGBTQ mixer. It was hosted by the Yale Yale Club LGBTQ alumni group. Love those mixers, yeah. The great, and that's actually a great place for people looking to make queer friends or they're looking for a partner. Do they still have events? I haven't seen yeah, any since COVID. They do. Oh, they do. I love that group. I, and I've actually recommended them to some of my single friends come to think of it. Are they in, are they national or are they just in New York? No, no. Well, I, I have no idea because these events are planned by the the New York City chapter. So they might be planned by other chapters, but I have a feeling that the New York City chapter is particularly active. 
And just for anyone listening, uh, even though it's called the Yale Club, neither Brooke nor I went to Yale. It's very open, very inclusive, and it just tends to anyone can be, go. Yeah, anyone can go, and it tends to attract a lot of more mature. You know, not not it's not like a young crowd. It's mature, professional. Yeah, I would say very age diverse. Age diverse, and I would say it always tends to be really friendly, welcoming. Not you know not a not a clicky environment. Very welcoming, no. warm. Yeah, very cool. So that's where you met Diane. I didn't know that. That's sweet. Yeah, that's that's where we met. And I think sometimes when you meet someone in an environment like that and you want to spend time with them, the default is, okay, it's a date. But I think we were probably just in points in our lives where it was better to get to know each other first without that pressure. So that's that's what we did. We kind of spent time together as friends. And the more we got to know each other, the more we realized that we were compatible romantically. So, yeah. That's so great. I, my only fear, if I was going to give advice to someone, I wouldn't want them to be friend zoned because I think that also can happen. Yes, absolutely. What is some advice for if you're going to go that route to, cause, to keep it flirtatious, to keep it something? I don't know. Did you keep it flirtatious? Like how did you, how do you do what you did and not have it be friend zoned? Oh, that's a good question. You know, I think there's probably there's probably a certain expiration date on the, you know, I, I think maybe after three months of hanging out and getting to know each other, maybe at that point you'd you'd sort of gauge whether this has potential for something romantic. And were you like holding your back from wanting to make out with her? Like was there Oh, I was for sure. But you know, I, I, so you're calling it friendship, but it sounds like it was very loaded with sexual tension and you guys were just sort of, well, on my end, I don't know about Diane's. How can I, how, how can I, you know, Diane's so private. I don't, I, I don't want to say too much. And you know, then all of a sudden I'm in the doghouse. No, no, we don't want that. I'll be in the doghouse too. Then I, I think the timing wasn't right for Diane. And I think I probably had to prove to her that I was relationship material. I, I will say I, the first day, the first time I met Diane, I was like, my search is over. This is the woman for me. And I've never had that happen to me before. I had always been like the slow burn kind of person. And for Diane, the opposite, she said that she usually knew right away when she liked someone. And I, I wasn't used to that kind of dynamic. So Diane likes to say, oh, Brooke's, Brooke has never been rejected before. So she just was like, oh, Diane can't not be interested. I just need to, you know, wait it out. But I don't know. I just felt like there was something there that maybe I wasn't in the right place. And maybe Diane needed time. But if we got to know each other, then things would work out. So I kind of, you know, I said, hey, let's just be friends and see and then i it all worked out and it very well could not have i actually had a couple friends of mine say hey brooke i just i don't think she's that into you but i mean seven years later i'm so glad it worked out seven years later i might have given you i might have been one of those people giving you bad advice maybe tend to tell people. oh yeah i mean I, I i was just i mean i was shameless but i mean i didn't I, I let diane take the lead when we were like hanging out as friends i was like Diane can take the lead. I'm just going to be waiting in the wings. We can hang out as friends. But I mean, I think 
for some people there is, you know, ending up in the friend zone, but look, some people are friends for years and then they get together romantically. I mean, that's, I will actually know that my first girlfriend that happened, we were friends. And then, you know, I never thought I could feel anything romantic for her and it happened. So life could be unpredictable. But did she like you the whole time and you knew she liked you the whole time? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. I, I think, I, I don't think either of us saw it coming. And then it just came on? Yeah, I guess it's, you know. Well, then, I, you know, things were building up for a couple months, but we had known each other for probably a year before that. That's cool. All right. Well, I want to just, you know, I don't want to um, have a whole conversation without getting some more great stuff about the the content you're creating with, with NBC. So let's get back to that. Yeah. And sorry, my, my professional life is probably more exciting than my romantic life. So I love, I love learning about people's, you know, relationships and how they happened and how they got themselves in a place to be ready for them. So I think it's the most interesting stuff, but yeah, getting back to your work, like what are some things that you recommend people checking out that you've worked on? We recently published an article that I absolutely love. It's, and it's actually a multimedia story. So an article, a video, and an interactive map about the renaissance of lesbian bars. So In the early days of the pandemic, we reported, and we were the first to report, that there was a dearth of lesbian bars left in the United States, and a number of them may not survive the pandemic. And I think at the time, we had counted maybe like around 20 lesbian bars left. And then our article went viral, and it was covered by a number of other places. We'll fast forward several years, and a few of my of my colleagues and I were talking about a few new lesbian bars that popped up. And we had reported on a couple of them. Nobody's Darling in Chicago, a woman's sports bar in Portland. And then one of the young women that works on the photo team at NBC shared with me that there were actually a few new lesbian and lesbian-ish bars that opened up in New York City. And I didn't even know about them. So we're like, there's something here. And I think it may be national. So we had a little team together and we researched and we found that there's probably now about 35, 36 lesbian bars across the U.S. At least a dozen of them have been open since 2020. And I mean, we're talking like that's a what, 50% bump in lesbian bars. And now we're not near the estimated 200 lesbian bars that there were in the 1980s, but still, I mean, this is, this is a surge and there's a renaissance here. Do you know why? So I think there are a few reasons. I think that most people didn't know how few lesbian bars there were in the U.S. And I think our reporting helped ignite that knowledge. And I think there were some business owners who were like, hey, why don't we start something like this? I also think in this political environment, people are realizing there's more of a need for safe safe queer spaces. I think you're especially seeing that in red states. A new lesbian bar opened up in Florida. I think it's called the Ladies Room. I forgot I, I forgot the city it's in, but you know, new lesbian bars in Oklahoma. So you're seeing this in red states, I mean, as well as New York City. I mean, and in Chicago. Uh, nobody's darling. So I do think there are a few, a few reasons why. 
And also we've noticed, and this article explores this, that both the new bars and the existing lesbian bars have sort of evolved into this more, this more expansive version of a lesbian bar. So even Henrietta Hudson's in New York City. I was just going to say that it's like a cafe they, now or like a restaurant well, sort of thing right now. But their branding also, I, I think now their branding is a queer bar built by dykes. So instead of a lesbian bar, a queer bar, but built by dykes. And in the article, and we have an interactive map of all the of all the bars, we also include their taglines because of a lot of the taglines are you know, are indicative of this new, more expansive view of the lesbian bar. That's really interesting. I think my understanding was a lot of the reason why the lesbian bars had closed was because queer women women weren't getting out and frequenting them them as much. Has that changed? Has that improved in terms of patronage by our community? So I don't think we're going to see the numbers of lesbian bars that we've seen decades ago. I think social media has changed that. I, now, if I, the most efficient way, if you are a woman, a woman who loves women, to meet another woman, swipe. Yeah, exactly. Is probably online. So I, I don't think we're going to get back up to the you know two hundred or so bars of yesteryear, but maybe it overcorrected, right? Maybe we left too few, and there was a need. I, I think there was a need for more. I mean, Cubbyhole in New York's in Manhattan, you could barely walk in the door there on a Thursday, Friday, or Saturday night. It's jam-packed. So I think there's definitely a need. I think also with the reporting on the dearth of lesbian bars and then the Lesbian Bar Project that launched shortly after our article, and they actually included our article when they initially launched, I think there was this kind of renewed support for lesbian bars. But I think that I, I think the pendulum probably swung too much in the other direction. And I think 20 left around the country was just, you know, there was an underserved population. But I also think now with the new, more expansive queer women's bars, I, I think now they're casting a wider net in terms of the, the clientele. Yeah. That's so great. And more people are identifying as queer. So if it's not only lesbian, but it's more queer, there's definitely, it expands. Exactly. And less people are identifying as lesbians, even, you know, cisgender women who only date cisgender women are, from what I can tell, less likely to identify as lesbians. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's definitely true. All right. So a selfish question for me, because I, I also create LGBT content. What have you learned about creating LGBT content from the work that you do when it comes to like sharing stories and messages with the wider community, but also in terms of, you know, being representative and giving a voice to LGBT, LGBT perspectives? Is there anything unique about covering this demographic compared to others that's worth noting? I think there's something unique about every community. One thing I think a lot of people don't realize about the LGBTQ community is that we are so diverse. You know, we're kind of packaged together as LGBTQ, but a white cisgender gay man living in Manhattan has a much different experience than a black trans woman living in Biloxi. 
and in covering the community, there are a lot of similarities that we have as an LGBTQ or a queer community across the spectrum. We have a lot of similar political interests, legislation that may affect people across the community, but the lives of the people within the queer community can be starkly different. And in reporting that, so our section covers the whole queer community and we try to make that our mission and not just be heavily focused on gay men or trans women you're not focus, you're not you're not um, creating content for queer people you're creating content for the broader community but the beat that you cover is LGBTQ right exactly so we want to create stories about and of interest to but at the end of the day we're the LGBTQ section for nbcnews.com so all of the stories we cover are we make sure that they're very accessible to people who may not be part of the community. So we're not going to use inside baseball queer language. And if we if there is something very inside baseball, I don't know if there's like someone refers to like a U-Haul lesbian, you know, we'll we'll explain that. Because, you know, if you're a 70-year-old heterosexual cisgender man in Wisconsin rural Wisconsin, you may be like, a U-Haul what? So we try to make our content accessible for everyone. But one thing I have to be aware of is, you know, just because I'm a lesbian doesn't mean I know about the whole queer community or I'm, you know, I, I have to have a certain level of awareness of the, the lens I'm looking at things through. So I make sure that we have an internal team and we work with freelance contributors who, you know, can help our, our stories be more all encompassing and more well-rounded because I don't want all of the story ideas coming from a, you know, 41 year old white cisgender lesbian living in Manhattan. So I make sure that I'm covering the full queer community and I try to be aware of my personal perspective and my personal lens, if that makes sense. Yeah, super important. What's funny about queer people is that in so many other minority communities, you're born into it. And so your sister, your brother, your parents, your neighbors, people around you all have that in common. But for us queer people, we find out that we're a part of that community later in life. And we have to come from the populations that we're born in and the mm-hmm. communities we're a part of. And then go and find our way into this other hodgepodge it's it's such an interesting thing and it is what i think it's such an interesting part of our community is how we all come from such different places and sort of get joined together and it makes us i think so much more diverse i mean the the socioeconomic diversity of the community and i think that also is part of the reason that chosen family is so important yeah absolutely it was one of my favorite parts about when I came out spending time in the lesbian bars and just it's diverse in terms of everything. It's diverse in terms of age. It's diverse in terms of socioeconomic. It's, it's just diverse in every single possible way. There's, it is just the the most hodgepodgey hodgepodge, especially in New York city. I don't know about other places, but you know, queer spaces here. Oh, sure. And, And the experience of people in different, especially people in different generations, the experience of I mean, in terms of generation and region, 
can be so vastly different. Absolutely. Someone today in places where it's still illegal to be gay versus a girl in high school in New York City right now, where from the time she was little, she had she was free to express her gender and her sexuality in any way she wanted, where you and I were saying earlier that the, there, there weren't even queer people for us to, and we, and we were near New York City. You said you grew up in Jersey, right? Mm-hmm. I grew up in Long Island. So even even us Same thing. at our age, yeah it still didn't exist, even if we were so in such close proximity to, to New York City. So yeah, and, and we're not even, I guess, technically that old. <laughs> technically. So just because so many people listening to this are also just trying to make their lives better for them for themselves in every way, just because you're someone who's worked in media for so long, what have you learned about communicating with others and getting a message across that that could help anyone listening be more effective in their life and their relationships and their jobs. One lesson that I think may translate when you're communicating with, whether you're writing an article, whether you're telling a story, I think people like to hear about other people. They like anecdotes. So when you're reporting on an issue, whether it be, monkeypox or LGBTQ poverty, stories resonate with people more when you include stories about real people and you include anecdotes. So that may be a useful communication tool that, you know, doesn't just apply to journalism. So anytime you're trying to make a point across, if you finish that point with, let me tell you a story or let me give you an example. And then you tell... I mean, it, it depends on the, you know, on the room that you're in, but I think stories about real people, I think examples, anecdotes, I think that resonates with people more. And of course, it's going to be, it's going to depend on the circumstance. You can't always throw in a, an anecdote, but I think that's helpful. I also, you know, with news, we like to include all sides of any particular issue. So, and not to say that we need to give all sides of every issue equal room in a story or equal time when we're talking about something. But if we're writing something about a bill, I, I think it was it this year or was it last year? I think it was this year, um, the state of Iowa had two bills seeking to roll back same-sex marriage rights. And we wrote about that, but we also want to include something from people that propose these bills. Like what, what are they thinking? Why, why would you propose something like this? Right. Because otherwise the context makes no sense. It just seems evil and out of place where. Exactly. Like, oh, this is an evil bill. Where most people do have their reasons, you know, from in their own internal logic, it makes sense to them. So we'd want to know why. So even if you know someone is not going to agree with someone's point, share with them what people on the other side are saying. I mean, that's sort of a cardinal rule of journalism. And I think that's different from, you know, you have to have both sides equally in a story. No, but I think no matter what we believe, if we understand why people believe the opposite, it only helps us be smarter in our own belief why we believe this way. Because if we don't know why people believe the other way, then there's a chance that if we heard that other way, we might believe it too. Whereas if we know all the sides and we still come down on our own side, we have a more informed 
position. Exactly. I don't know if that's what, what you were going for when you asked the question, but that's what came to mind. Yeah, no, exactly. Just communication. Any communication techniques are valuable. And I think those are, are really good ones. You know, whenever you're trying to teach someone something, if you can tie it to an anecdote about a person, it'll help the other listener hear that, hear what you're saying more and internalize it more. And if you're explaining an issue, you'll probably help the listener be more informed if they can understand what everyone thinks about it and, and why. Yeah, I think those are great pieces of advice. And actually, this is a, a connection to, to dating. Uh, so one of my best friends, part of my lesbian crew that I mentioned earlier, her name's Jillian. She actually works with me at NBC now. So she's a journalist and she's now married to a lovely woman. But when we were both single, we used to talk about how when we went on first dates, the best way to not get nervous was to pretend that we were interviewing someone for an article. So we would just like, I mean, when I went out, I just, you know, I kind of asked people questions about themselves and, and let them go from there. I'm like, I could, I could talk to anyone if I, if I what I'm doing is just kind of interviewing them. So you know, there's journalistic skills at work in the dating world. Yeah, I love that. The idea of asking someone else questions when you're nervous and then just letting your own curiosity, you know, because you're, if you're curious about someone, genuinely curious and you genuinely give them the space to talk, that makes you more interesting to them. I, I don't know that, you know, I think maybe some people might think, you know, I think, um, the idea like, oh, I feel like I'm at an interview might be not a positive uh, thing that people might say on a date. So, but I, but I do think that the energy of curiosity. Well, you, you make it seem fun and interactive. Totally. The energy of curiosity, the energy of caring what the other person's saying of, of you really just wanting to know who, who doesn't want to be in a conversation with an, with a person looking at you, wanting to hear from you, wanting to know what you have to say, being curious, being engaging. So I, yeah, I mean, asking good questions is one of the best ways in the world to be engaging. So that really is great advice for, for dating, for sure. You work with a lot of women, right? I do. I do. And actually our, I would say NBC News Digital is, and maybe it's 50-50. I'm, I'm not totally sure. But my unit, so the teams that cover, we call ourselves the diversity vertical. So there's NBC Out. That's the team that I run. NBC BLK, NBC Latino, and NBC Asian America. The editors for all those four sections are women. And our boss, who's the senior director of diversity news coverage, is also a woman. That's amazing. Yeah. A lot of, of female leaders. Do you have any thoughts of, about anything you've learned about women throughout your experiences in professional life? like advice for working with other women or being the kind of woman that other women want to be around and work with and talk to? I would say I've noticed anecdotally that women less so than men ask for what they really want, make any sort of demands. I mean, and when I say demands, I don't mean like crazy demands. Like I would like this, this, and this because X, Y, Z. I find that men are typically more likely to, uh, you know, share their wants and probably feel entitled to certain things more so than women. So I always love when 
I see a woman be very proactive and negotiate for salary or go out and share explicitly what she wants and what she deserves. And I don't think we do that enough. And I think it's the way that we're socially conditioned. I do this too. And I constantly say, I'm sorry. I actually, I box. I mean, not like I, I have a boxing trainer. I don't like fight in matches or anything, but you know, it's amazing exercise. But my trainer, and he works with mostly men, you know, I'll do the wrong combination of punches and I'll say, sorry. And he's like, you have to stop that. So now he makes me do push-ups every time I say sorry. And it's so ingrained that I keep doing it. I do that too. And I notice, I notice it in other women. And it's just this social conditioning. And even in the way that we communicate, you know, in my Slack and email messages, just to ensure that what I'm writing isn't mis, you know, nothing is lost in translation and people know that I'm writing this with a smile. You know, I, I'll write smiley faces and exclamation points. And I notice it more with women. 100%. And I try to do it less, but I also think that women are judged differently than men. And I wonder if I didn't include those smiley faces and exclamation marks, would people read my messages differently? Or if I didn't say sorry, would people read my actions differently? Yeah. And, and when you talked about, you know, women asking for what they want, if you went around to other women just demanding things, would they be as celebratory about it as you are when you're celebrating these other women being bold? Are other women happy with us if we're more bold? I don't know. What do you think? I, don't, I, I do think we're judged differently on the whole. I think that's changing. But I, there was a Wall Street Journal article a while ago that talked about how women negotiate less, but they're looked at differently than men when they negotiate. So that's a hard place to be in. So do you just go for it? Do you do you negotiate for what you think you deserve? But then the flip side is you may be looked at in a different way than your male counterpart. And now I hope that's changing to an extent. It's a real catch-22. Yeah. But it's something I notice in myself that I'm, that I'm working on. I'm trying to say sorry less, trying to include smiley faces and exclamation points and written messages less unless they're necessary because without them you might be seen differently yeah i it's it's a hard one yeah it really is well i just want to be really mindful of your time but before we wrap is there anything that you just wish every woman could know and also please of course include where women can go to follow you and find your work what i wish women could know let's see what do i wish women could know I feel like most of my life, professionally at least, probably personally, I didn't have as much faith and confidence in myself as other people did. And I think I held myself back by not verbalizing what I wanted. And this is probably primarily professionally. I always love when I see young people queer women, any, I mean, especially women, but young people who are very frank about 
what they want. This is, this is what I want for my next step. And I never did that. I was always afraid to do that. And I think that held me back in many ways. And I think women and probably queer women more so are less likely to do that. I also love queer history, especially sapphic queer history. So I would love to recommend to the folks listening to pick up a copy of my favorite book and learn all about our sapphic sisters. It's called Odd Girls and Twilight Lovers by Lillian Faderman. It is a history of queer women in the 20th century. It's brilliant. Lillian Faderman is brilliant. And we just, there's so much amazing history from our sapphic sisters. I will definitely link to that in the show notes. Yes. And if anyone wants to get in touch with me, my work email is simply brooke at nbc.com. You can email me there. I am also on Instagram at yes, it's me, Brooke. I'm on LinkedIn, Brooke Zapelsa. I think there's only one of me. And uh, Twitter at, at Brooke Zapelsa. And NBC Out, you can find it. Yes. So our link, we have a landing page, nbcout.com. But all of our news stories you can find on the nbcnews.com homepage. And actually, the story that I just published is right now leading nbcnews.com. But I know folks won't be listening uh, right now. But just, you know, that's how much NBC News values queer stories. Right now, as I say this, a story, a you know, queer news story is leading a national news site. But if you want to see all of our stories, our landing page is nbcout.com. That's so great. I'll have links to all of that. This has been such a great conversation. Brooke, I'm so grateful that you shared your time. Thank you so much for your time and for asking me to be one of your guests. Well, I stalked you to get you here about as much as you stalked Diane to get her to date you. But uh, yeah, well, hey, that was six that was six months of shameless stalking. I don't think I didn't go that far. No, you didn't make me wait six months. I'm grateful. Thank you for that, Brooke. You're awesome. I, I can't wait to see you soon, I hope. Thanks so much for listening. If you like this episode, please subscribe, share it with a friend, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you want lesbian dating advice from me more often, follow me on Instagram at jordana.michelle. Also, don't forget that womenwantingwomen.com is packed with free resources that can help you build your confidence and have more success with dating. While you're there, you can book a one-on-one coaching session with me to get my personal support in finding the love you long for. Until next time, keep remembering that hot lesbians are everywhere, that love is real, and that the woman of your dreams is on her way into your life in perfect timing. And I'll catch you next time on Women Wanting Women.